on 105.3 FM in New Orleans. This show's entrance has been edited, produced, and directed by Gwen Clapper from Perfect Trust Productions, LLC. You can find us at perfecttrustproductions.com. everyone and welcome to Monday night segment of Horsefly Chronicles Radio with myself, Julia Syracusa, and Bill Syracusa. We're broadcasting live from the International Public Radio and the United Paranormal Radio Network on 105.3 FM from New Orleans. This evening's show is fully sponsored by Carnation, so we want to thank them for their sponsorship. We'll have to do a few things in order to participate. Go over to the YouTube channel, UFO Paranormal Radio, International Public Radio. You can also go into all the Facebook stations, UFO Paranormal Radio Network, UFO Undercover with Joe Montalto, that's still in the background. News on the flip side, also Twitch, SoundCloud, and you can also go over to our group, Horseman Chronicles Radio. I suggest that we immediately bring this matter to the attention of the okay. missing inspector. Today I want to um, welcome our Hello. very sorry. We are having technical so, difficulties. Please stand by. Not, our producer forgot to shut his microphone off. appreciate feedback about your recent visit Okay, so sorry about that. So tonight, guys, please welcome to the show Miss um, Rosemary Thornton. For 20 years, Rose enjoyed a national re- reputation as an expert on old houses, the author of 10 books. Rosemary has been featured on everything from PBS, History Detectives, to BBC Radio. In 2016, her husband sadly committed suicide, and two years later, Rose was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. After a routine medical procedure, Rose bled to death, and she was dead for 10 minutes. In heaven, she was told that if she agreed to return to Earth, she would be restored to wholeness. Medical tests confirmed that not only did the disease disappear, but she was also healed of a crippling grief. You can find out more about our guest on her website, www.temporary.death.com. So please, let's welcome her to the show. Welcome to Horsefly Chronicles Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. So sorry. All right, so we have a little technical difficulties. Yeah. It happens. Um, this is very interesting. Um, wow. Wow. Well, first, um, you're still here on the physical realm, so that's great. Mm-hmm. Second is you've been through a lot. Um, you know, that's... Can you take us um, to the beginning of your story um, and, you know, this, this beautiful story that you have? Beautiful but sad. Yeah, like take us through the transition of, um, you know, what you felt when you, your husband 
took his life and then from the point of uh, when you were uh, diagnosed? Uh, okay, I will try to do that as succinctly as possible. <laughs> you mentioned my 10 books. The 10th one is actually about this experience. And writing that book was a great blessing because it enabled me to put the story on paper. And that just helps tell the story as well. Yeah. I had an editor, I've been writing for a long time. I had an editor years ago and she said, uh, you're too prosaic, too loquacious. She said, Think of every word as if it cost you a dollar and spend them with great care. <laughs> so I'll try to be as uh, as succinct as possible. So I had met this man uh, in my mid-40s, and I thought he was the love of my life. In fact, I was quite certain of it. He was handsome. He was sophisticated. He was educated. He was erudite. He was brilliant uh, and fun, had a great sense of humor and interesting and well-traveled. He was self-defined as a bon vivant and you know he seemed to enjoy his life there were times in our life together when i suffered depression and my husband would tell me um he would say we have a good life and he was right we did uh you know i've, I've been a writer for 30 some years i'm creative i you know my my superpower is ruminating and overthinking everything so I've always been a very sensitive soul and, uh, you know, typical creative type. So uh, there was no warning. There was no advance notice, no hints, no nothing. And uh, he came home for lunch one day and ended his life at our home. And to say it was devastating was is an understatement. There's something about trauma that a lot of people don't understand until they experience it. I likened it really more to having a stroke. Because I had an expansive vocabulary from 30 years as a writer. I'd written nine books at this point. I'd been a newspaper reporter for a few years. I'd written for websites, magazines, newspapers, everything. And uh, after this experience, I lost the ability to read. I could still read words on the page, but I couldn't comprehend what they meant. You know, I could I could read red and shoe and uh, wall, but I, I didn't know how to put words together. And then the other thing that I noticed was I lost my fine and gross motor skills. My writing, which had previously been quite perfect and, and tidy, suddenly looked like the scribblings of a very elderly person and uh, had a lot of accidents, tripping, falling, a couple car accidents. So it's it really is more like having had a stroke. I lost so many words. You know, I had trouble talking and I had a lot of trouble reading. So it's hard to really imagine the devastation of a trauma of this level, especially for a sensitive soul. I had a very wise friend that said, beyond the usual horrors of a suicide, she said, there's also the fact that you're very, very sensitive. And she was right. That was a big deal. So I had actually, uh, I was unable to care for myself or my dog. I actually gave my dog away. And then I realized, I guess about three or four weeks later that that dog, the dog had seen him do this. My beloved Teddy had seen him do this and tried to lick him back to life. So she was as traumatized as any of us. Uh, and I had given the dog to my daughter. And fortunately, she let me take the dog back. But I was un unable to care for myself. And a couple people stepped into my life who took care of me. And I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I just wasn't able to eat. And I didn't care about eating. I had a financial advisor sit me down, you know, trying to be helpful. Everyone wants to help 
poor Rosemary. And she's trying to be helpful. And she said, so Rosemary, where do you see yourself in two years? And I said, oh, I'll be dead. I'm not going to survive this. There's no way I can survive this. And it wasn't some self-pitying statement. It was a statement of fact. I could not imagine. And I had three prayers. I prayed every night without fail, very faithfully. Every night I, I asked God, either heal me or let me die because I was living in hell. You know, in Psalms, it says, if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I had just made my bed in hell. I had set up housekeeping. I figured I would just live the rest of my life in these hellish circumstances. And my second prayer was, I can't handle any more decisions. I had severe decision fatigue. After my husband's death, there were a number of legal messes that had to be sorted out, which involved going to attorneys and spending money. And uh, two, in every decision, there were two bad outcomes. And I had to choose the lesser of a bad outcome. And then my third prayer was, I had been a fan of reading about every NDE I could get my hands on from uh, Raymond Moody's Life After Life. I read that like it was my job after it came out, I think, in the mid-70s. I read Life After Life, uh, Life After Life. Oh, that was Moody's book, and then uh, Betty Eadie and, uh, golly, Daniel Brinkley. I read them all. George Ritchie. Loved them. So I asked God. My third prayer was, when I die, spare me the life review. I had had recurring nightmares. My husband had used a gun. And I had recurring nightmares that I, I reached him just as he uh, pulled the trigger. And then I had nightmares that I got to him before and begged him not to do it. And he did it anyway. I mean, the nightmares were endless. You know, that's the downside of a creative mind is you, you see things again and again. And I saw him in my sleep to a point I almost hated to go to sleep. So I asked God, I said, look, when my prayer was when I die, spare me the life review. I had been through this every night. It wasn't just that he did it. I went through this every night in my sleep. And so those were my three prayers. And so I actually, uh, I got, I was pretty much a mess and everybody knew I was a mess. This man really was the love of my life. My life had not been an easy one. And I thought that now, now that there, now there'd be peace. You know, we had some financial stability. Uh, we enjoyed each other. We'd go to bed every night early just so we could read books to each other. I mean, we were a pair of nerds that had found each other and it was awfully enjoyable to just lay in bed at night and read our favorite books to each other. And we, all, we were mainly big history buffs. We did tours of museums. We did all kinds of thematic tours. We went through the steam train museums, and then we went to the Confederate museums. And we just, we, we were so uh, alike each other in that way. So um, I realized I could not face life anymore. And I had a plan for how to end my own life. And it was very detailed. You know, an aside, um, people talk about suicide prevention. I think September was uh, is Suicide Prevention Month. And that's a real hot button with me because uh, this idea that we can stop people from killing themselves it just doesn't apply in a lot of cases. And what it does, it, it heaps on the survivor guilt. You know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Maybe I could have stopped this. I was his wife. In fact, I went to a suicide survivor's, um, gosh, what do you call it, a support group. And there was a woman there who was, um, I guess, about my age, and her son had ended his life. And she said to the group, uh, I know my son would still be alive if he hadn't married that woman. And that was it for me. And that's very common. And suicide survivors, as we're known, those of us who have survived the suicide of a close loved one, are 12 to 48 times more likely to end our own life than the general population. So now we have a known risk group. If you want to talk about suicide prevention, we need to help those people. Because I'm in a suicide survivors group on uh, social media. And in that group of, uh, I think it's about, well, at the time it's about a thousand women. We had three women who ended their own lives. Because what happens is your in-laws go away. 
and sometimes your own family of origin goes away and you become a social leper. Nobody wants to talk to you. I mean, my husband had been, had had a good career. I'd been a writer with some success. We were a fun couple. We had great yard parties. We had social gatherings that, you know, everyone loved to go to and had a good time. Well, after his suicide, those people disappeared. Those people were not to be heard or seen again, which was unbelievably unnerving. And yet the people that ran into the fray were the people on the periphery of my life. They were, I guess, what the world would define uh, working class and middle class. And they literally came in to save me. In fact, the two people who uh, took me into their homes, took me into their life, stayed with me. You know, we love the story of the Good Samaritan, and it's an important story. But the Good Samaritan's involvement with the, the man who'd fallen into the ditch on the road to, uh, I think it was Jericho, um, he put the guy on an ass and sent him off to the inn and gave the innkeeper some money. The people who saved me invested months and years of their life to keep me going. And that's one of the things, you know, I, I do get emails from people who talk about suicide in different ways. But when you, in my case, when my husband did this, all it did, well, not all, that's an unfair statement, but one of the things that it did was create a tremendous burden for everybody else to keep me alive, to support me. I lost the ability to eat food. I was living on protein shakes for some time. I lost 40 pounds. So yeah, it, it'll mess you up really bad. And the people who try to be helpful, I guess, they come and say, oh, you're so strong, you're so strong, yeah. you're so strong, wanted to hit them in the face, seriously. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 a, to say it's messy is an understatement, but so I had come up with my own plan on how to end my life and it was very detailed. I had the means, I had the plan, I had the place, I had it all figured out when life got too hard. I would just sit and literally contemplate how this would unfold. And I was trying to stay alive through nothing more than willpower. And that's not very effective when all your friends are gone, your life is gone. Um, I couldn't spend the night in that house again for obvious reasons. You know, I lost everything. And to lose your friends, too, is so hard. <laughs> and that's the thing. When, when we talk about suicide prevention, you want to help people find somebody who's lost a child or a spouse or a best friend to suicide and make sure they're not isolated. Make sure they're not alone. Make sure they have enough protein shakes to keep them alive. Make sure they're still being cared for and watched over and protected from themselves. That's what you got to do. So anyway, 29 months passed this way and I wasn't doing well. And in fact, I had a, I kept a gratitude journal. I had always kept a gratitude journal and not, not a week before this cancer diagnosis happened. Uh, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer stage two. Not a week before that I had written in my gratitude journal. I did not kill myself today. It was a win. So I was really battling this. So then, um, you know, I had some physical symptoms, some very disturbing physical symptoms, went to a doctor, got referred to an oncologist. Oncologist said, you've got cancer. It's at least stage two. They did a surgical biopsy to determine how far the disease had spread. And it was after that procedure that uh, I woke up in a uh, hospital recovery room. As you know, I was given general and they wheel you off to the recovery room, make sure you're going to come back. And I woke up from that and they say, off you go, go to the potty, you know, get yourself ready, time to go home. And, you know, interesting, the biopsy itself only took 30 minutes. It took them three hours to arouse me, uh, to, to, to wake me up, to get me going again after that. But I went, I came back from my little uh, trip to the bathroom and I said, something's gone terribly wrong. I'm bleeding profusely. And the RN in attendance said, oh, once you get home and lie down, you'll be just fine. <laughs> oh, 
I told her two more times. I had a witness. I told her two more times. Something's gone very wrong. I'm bleeding profusely. At this point, I was 57. You know, I, I knew something was going wrong. No, no. They said, once you get home, go, go lie down. You'll feel fine. In retrospect, I should have said, I should have said, you know what? Go get that doctor. Well, let's get another opinion on this thing. But yeah, I was discharged and sent home. And at home, it was just getting worse. I had some really pretty carpet in my house, you know, kind of a almost white carpet. And when you're bleeding to death, the most important thing is making sure you don't leave a mess for your heirs to clean up. So I was very worried about that carpet. I really was. So I went and stood in my bathroom. I had this lovely walk-in shower. So I stood in my walk-in shower. So if I made a mess, it would be easy to clean. So I stood in that shower and I realized I was, um, I was bleeding to death. I mean, you just, there's a lot of blood involved and, you know, it doesn't take a, it uh, doesn't take anybody to, too smart to realize that you can't lose so much blood for a long time. And standing in that shower, I had a lot of thoughts. I thought, you know what? Uh, one of the Bible verses somebody read to me back in the day, which brought me immense comfort was First uh, Corinthians 10, 13, God will show you a way out. And I'm standing in that shower watching my life's blood go down the center drain. And I'm thinking, this is my way out. This is this is my path out of hell. This is this is my get out of hell free card. And I thought all I have to do is sit down on the floor of this shower and I'm out. And I had two friends that had brought me home from the hospital sitting in the living room and I thought wow. I really thought about this. I thought is it fair for them to come in here in a few minutes and find me splayed on the floor looking rough, dead probably, and I thought these two people that have worked so hard to keep me alive, is that really fair to them? And, oh, man, that was a very difficult decision, truthfully, because I was done. Uh, I, it had already been determined that I had at least stage two, and I was supposed to start chemotherapy and uh, once-a-week chemotherapy and daily radiation as soon as possible. And I thought, don't want to do that. I've been through enough. But I thought about my two friends out there and the people who had been so loving and so supportive and so good, and I thought, man. I guess I better give this one more try. So I stepped out of the shower, told my friend to call an ambulance. He did. I was taken to a small ER that was not connected to a hospital. It was a standalone ER. And at that ER, uh, it was a young doctor and a the RN to my left, you know, because they put, put you right on a gurney. And uh, an RN to my left was about my age. And at this point, I was pretty frightened. I'd never been in an ambulance. I'd never been in a hospital. I'd never had a surgery. This was a day of many firsts. Wow. And I grabbed that RN's hand and I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she was so compassionate. So it showed me really just something akin to motherly love. And she said, oh, honey, we're not going to let you die. We have many solutions for this. And I was very comforted by that. And uh, she and the doctor, I guess, whomever, the doctor gave me some Dilaudid, which the nurse administered, which it's actually a morphine derivative. And it's actually not a good idea for somebody who's bleeding to death. <laughs> so oh, okay. that was a boo-boo. Uh, anyway, um, soon the after doctor, that was it. Pardon? The doctor, I mean, I can't, I can't believe what I'm hearing. It's crazy. Yeah, there were, it took, you know, I was in that hospital relatively healthy. It took a lot of boo-boos to take me out. But after that, Dilaudid was administered, uh, 
it was very close to my last words on this earth being, that's some really good stuff. <laughs> and soon thereafter, I lost consciousness. I hypothesize, I really don't know, but I suspect that the lot had had an extra kick because my blood volume was already pretty low at this point. So uh, what the last thing I remember was saying that's some pretty good stuff. And then uh, I... I, I don't know if I lost consciousness or went to sleep or whatever the proper, you know, word is there. But uh, my friend, again, my friend had accompanied me to the ER and he was sitting to my left and uh, I had a blood pressure cuff on my right. You know, there's things on a stick, the blue machines that automatically read your blood pressure every few minutes. And the doctor and the nurse had stepped out of the room. Another not great choice. <laughs> Because my friend said he looked, oh, what happened was one point my eyes popped open and I tried to sit up on the gurney and he said, you couldn't quite sit up. So you reached your arms up and looked up and he said, you talked to somebody that only you could see. And he stood up and he leaned over me, like, you know, got right in my face. And he said, Rose, and you know, this is what he told me. I don't really remember this, but he, he said, Rose, what do you need? And he said, this is pretty cool. When I reach my hands up like that, because I'm on a gurney, you know, I'm on my way to heaven. I reach my hands up. He said, you reach your hands way, way up and, and wiggled your fingers like somebody had come for you. And he said, the next thing was I plopped back on the gurney. And at this point, my blood, when I first tried to sit up, my blood pressure had been 32 over 25. So I was on my way out. And after I flopped back on that gurney, he said, the blood pressure machine just read error. So it was lower than 32 over 25. And it took the nurse and the doctor a minute to get back to the room. And when the nurse got back, actually, the nurse got back in the room first. And again, this is from his reminiscence. I was off having my own experience. Um, he said the nurse came in and fiddled with the blood pressure cuff. And then she fiddled around with the wall outlet. <laughs> like, oh, the machine's malfunctioned. It's not getting a reading. And... Uh, and then he said she did a, 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 it's called a sternal rub, where they take their uh, fingers and rub them over your sternum. The idea is it's supposed to elicit a pain response. And if, if you don't stir, it means you've gone. So <laughs> apparently that's what she did. And he said, my buddy who was there with me said it was a bit of time before she was like, huh, I think she's dead. <laughs> you know? And it was then that she summoned the doctor. And once the doctor came in, he was shooed out the door. Um, but meanwhile, I was having the time of my life. I was having a great time. Uh, the last thing I remember was that comment about this is some good stuff. And I was in a deep, dreamless state. And my next memory was being awakened from this deep, dreamless state and being catapulted out of my body. And I mean catapulted. It was very dramatic surprisingly dramatic it was right up the, to the cusp of being alarming or jarring but it wasn't it was it was just a good time and it was as though there was a silvery sinewy cord from the crown of my head to the bottom of my feet and it it was like somebody had pulled back on that like an archer's bow and when that pop hit my back is when i went flying Cat again catapult is the only word i can come up with and i was in this blackness people say oh did you see your body i did not i was in this perfect velvety, cushiony, comforting blackness. And within this blackness, I couldn't see anything. Peace was a verb. I was actively being given peace 
infused with peace, surrounded by peace, loved by peace. It was it was just the most perfect peace I had ever known. And I thought about, uh, shoot, I think it's in Corinthians, but I'm not sure where, or maybe Colossians. But Paul says, talks about the peace that passeth all understanding. Uh, this is that peace. Nobody could ever describe or understand or explain this peace. This is that peace. And early on, I mean, it's hard to come up with a linear construct for your time in heaven, but one of the first things I, I believe that I said to myself, I mean, I, you know, I'd lived alone for a time. I had a dog. I talked out loud all the time. You know, I'm kind of garrulous in that way. But uh, I, I said, um, my heart is stopped. And I thought, how do I know that? And I thought, I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. And then the next thing was the next thought because it felt like my whole life, I my whole life on this earth, I've been living at sixty amps, you know, electrical service. Now is at a hundred thousand. It was like I, I suddenly had this consciousness that was so much bigger than anything I'd known on earth. And my next thought was, I'm dying. And then, being the ever faithful writer, I thought, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. And it cracked me up. And I laughed out loud. And I I heard myself laugh. And it was so comforting because I thought. Everything I am has gone with me, down to my funny little giggle, my moribund sense of humor, or I guess macabre sense of humor, my uh, my intellect, my memories, memories of Bible verses, memories of my life. It was amazing. Uh, but yeah, that thing that hearing my own laugh, because I thought, I don't have breath sounds. I'm pretty sure I don't have ears or vocal cords. And yet I'm producing sound. And I sound just like I've always sounded. I had a career for, at this point, I guess about 18 years as an architectural historian. And I had given a lot of talks to a lot of places. I'd done a lot of interviews. Uh, I'd been on television many times. I knew what I sounded like. And I sounded the same. And I thought, even my voice is the same. Because, you know, we believe vocal or sound is produced by vocal cords and the, the tone and pitch and all of that comes from the size and shape of our vocal cords. But I sounded just the same. I have, well, this is really great. And I was immensely comforted by the realization that I had left nothing of import on that gurney behind. My intellect had gone with me. My memories had gone with me. My memories of Bible verses had gone with me. My thoughts about chemo and radiation. I mean, I had such an awareness. And, you know, another interesting facet throughout this experience, which, by the way, I was dead with no heartbeat and no blood pressure for more than 10 minutes. And the reason that matters uh, when somebody dies from bleeding to death, you you cannot do CPR because if you do, you just push out more blood. So my brain was without any oxygenation for more than 10 minutes, which is pretty interesting. And yet I came back with an upgrade. <laughs> so mind uh, bottling. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. So but I remembered. I remember thinking, you know, that chemo and radiation, I don't have to worry about that anymore. But one of the things that happened was uh, throughout this experience, I heard somebody yelling rosemary very loudly, very in an agitated way, very um, almost aggressively, like panic, I guess is the best way to describe it. And it was like she was behind me. But the more I floated away, the quieter and quieter the voice got. And it was so interesting that screaming rosemary over and over again was akin to the noise that an alarm clock makes when you just want to sleep longer. It was almost annoying. It was almost just like a little bit of irritation. And what's so interesting is, you know, you if you're in a crowd and somebody screams your name, you can't help but spin your head around and see what's going on. 
And for a while, I wondered about this. Why didn't I at least turn around when I heard my name being yelled? And I realized it's because I was no longer Rosemary. That persona, by the way, persona comes from the Latin word for mask. That persona was gone. That was earthly. And, and you know, I actually just read a story or my daughter shared a story with me about a paramedic who was trying to, was on first on the scene trying to revive a man who'd been dead for a few minutes. And she said, your children need you. And that in, in, in this experience floating away from his body, he realized, oh my gosh, I'm not even thinking about my children. My children need me. And that's what brought him back. So calling a name is not a good idea. And I think emergency uh, first responders are learning that. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't scream a name. Scream something like your children need you. So one of the things that happened very early on is I remember thinking, you know, it seems like everything I am has come with me. What did I leave behind on that gurney? And I thought fear, worry, woe, panic, anxiety, PTSD, everything negative and sad and depressing was what I left behind. And I thought to myself, being a lifelong writer and a lifelong nervous person, I thought I've always wondered what I would look like without those negative elements. And I thought, this is great. This is really fun. This is this is just remarkable. Uh, and again, one of the early things that happened, I felt a massive spiritual presence to my left, slightly behind me, and very tall. And I turned my head to the left, and I looked up, pretty interested by the fact that I seemed to have something of a human-esque form, even in this spiritual experience. I turned my head to the left to look over my left shoulder. And I said, with great joy and a lilt in my voice, I said, and who are you? <laughs> And I still couldn't see anything. I'm still in this peace-producing blackness. And the answer, again, before I could even get the words out, the answer was immediate. You, Rosemary, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. I was like, whoa. That's Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 27. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And you know what's so cool about that is that had always been one of my favorite Bible verses And I didn't really know what it meant to be made in the image and likeness of God. And now, not a day, I mean, this happened four years ago. Not a day of my life passes that I don't think about the original. I just, you know, it's just so cool to think about an original. So this went on and on and on. Uh, You know, I'll try to keep it as brief as I can, but it went on for some time. And at one point, I recognized that I had been in this experience before, in this blackness floating. And uh, I asked, I was with a spiritual being. I just felt like they were floating with me or, or guiding me or something. They were, but I was not alone. I have had so much loneliness in my life. And, you know, my daughter just asked me recently, she said, you know, if you wanted to define this in three words, how would you define this experience? And I said, that's actually pretty easy. It would be welcome home, dearie. It just felt like I was with my people, you know. All my life I've been the nerd, the weird kid, the oddball. And I felt just surrounded by the, the, the people that I love. Wow. So in this experience, I asked the person, the being with me, I said, you know, I, this feels very familiar. <laughs> Why does this experience feel so familiar to me? And she said, your mom had told you when you were an infant there had been a problem at birth and you'd been given up, uh, the doctors had given up on you as dead. And my mother had prayed for me, and uh, the angel said, you got sent back then, too. <laughs> wow. That is, I mean, that's... <clears throat> that's amazing. 
You know, I, I have a question and I'm sure, sure. all the listeners really want to know, were you able to see your deceased husband while you were in Yeah, a lot of people ask me that. This experience went on. It was very rich. It was very detailed. And I did not see anybody. If I was going to see somebody, I would have expected it would have been my mother. Okay. Um, my mother, I think, was my my bestest friend, my soulmate. Uh, but no, I didn't see any, I saw these angelic, not angelic beings, but I saw these spiritual beings and I felt the presence of the original. Uh, so yeah, that kind of explained why all my life I had been fascinated by NDEs and how all my life I had, uh, felt so close to the angels. You know, I have had a humanly at times, very lonely life, but I think the people who suffer the most loneliness on this earth I think we get better access to the angels. I really do. I think they know we're lonely and they tend to kind of crowd in, make sure we're not I quite as lonely. I agree. Um, yeah, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> what was the land? Is there a landscape where you are in heaven? What is it like? Well, I floated in the blackness for some time. There was not a la landscape. I couldn't see a thing. You know, what's interesting is after my husband's suicide, I had been terrified of the darkness. I had to sleep with a nightlight on. Or a light. And after this, when I came back from this, I now prefer to sleep in a pitch black room because it reminds me of that experience. I can think about being in that blackness again. Uh, but ultimately, I was, I, I don't remember exactly how, but I ended up in a white room. And in this white room, uh, the landscape is a good question. The white room had a floor, had a ceiling, had walls, but it was perfect, 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 perfect white. And in front of me was a door about, I don't know, 15 to 20 feet in front of me. And in this white room, it was the most perfect white. You know, in, in perfect, in, well, in terms of paint, perfect white actually has an element of blue in it. And this was just perfect white. And in this room, there was a mist or a fog. And it was just falling and swirling all around me. And I, I said to the um, angel with me, I said, I feel like I should be able to focus on an individual droplet, which sounds crazy. If you're next time you're in a fog, try to focus on a, a droplet of vapor. But the angel said, your spiritual eyes have not acclimated to this new environment. She said, but what you're seeing are particles of light. And uh, it was likened to a spiritual car wash that some people go to heaven with a disease process so heavily imprinted on their thought, they believe it to be part of their identity. And this washing with light restores our innate spiritual perfection or our wholeness, our heavenly wholeness. And it was also explained to me, and I, it wasn't explained. I don't really know the words for this, but in this, when I saw this room, um, in this room, I saw this door in front of me and I knew what that door was from reading about all these NDEs. I knew that door meant we were done. <laughs> you know? I'd be crossing the Rubicon and we were done. I couldn't wait to get to that door. And I wish I'd looked at my feet, but I remember thinking, I don't know if I have feet or legs, but I know I can get with intent. If I, I can move with intention to that door, I couldn't wait to get to that door. And uh, as I approached the door, it was made clear to me that uh, if I agreed to go back, that I would be restored to wholeness. And it was put that way, restored to wholeness. And uh, I was like, yeah, that's great. Out of the way. <laughs> Good to know. But I put my right hand up to push through that door. And I was a little miffed that that door was shut. That didn't seem right. That door ought to be open. Um, and I put my right hand up to push through the door. And I thought, right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. How cool is that? And uh, I paused. 
I paused and I asked, is this the divine will for my life? And before I could even get the first three words out, the answer was immediate. And the answer was no, this is not the divine will for your life. But whatever you decide, if you decide to go forward or you decide to go back, you'll go with all of God's grace and mercy and blessings and care and love. And I thought, I'll take that deal. And interestingly, and aside, that was the answer to my second prayer about decision fatigue. I was told there are no wrong decisions. And and I believe that has to be parent, parenthetically within when we are seeking to do the will of God, you're not going to make a wrong decision. And if you do, you can circle back around. But that's what I was told. There are There's not a wrong decision here. And that was so comforting. But so... I I thought either way, you know, I go with all of God's love and mercy and care and grace. I thought I'll take the door because I'm done. You know, one of my early thoughts was I felt like I had been given early release for good behavior. I wanted to be off this earth. I was yeah, done. Early release. I like that. Well, I've heard that before. Oh, it was not. It's not been an easy life. Uh, and at that know, moment. Do you know who actually gave you? You didn't know who you were speaking to because you couldn't see anybody. Correct. I could not see anybody, but it was somebody that really liked me. They knew me. They knew me inside out, backwards and forwards, and they were crazy about me. You know, that's when I say, "Deary, uh, welcome home, dearie. It felt like this person had known me for eternity and, and loved me and cherished me and just thought I was the greatest thing in the world. I, it just was so comforting and you, you don't ever want to leave that. But so at the door, I, um, uh, I, I put my right hand up to push through because I was like, all right, I know the deal. Either way, I richly blessed, got it. And uh, at that moment, I had a vision of that nurse. And it's more than, it was more than a vision. It felt like I had been granted an opportunity to be a silent visitor in a room. And I was observing her, and she was sitting in a hospital supply room, on a little metal stool, leaning forward, head in her hands, and sobbing uncontrollably. And I I observed this. I was watching this. And she said through tears, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die. And I've lost her. And I thought, oh, come on. (laughs) Don't do this to me. Uh And I thought, you know what? She's my age. She's lost patience. She'll get over it. You know? (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's so sad. Too bad. She'll get over it. And then my... The next thing was I didn't just see her. I felt her grief. It was like for a moment I felt the grief she was feeling. And I recognized that deep, inconsolable grief as the grief I had known for those 29 months between my husband's death and my own. And I thought, if I can spare one person that much grief, I got to go back. And I put my right hand back down at my side. And boy, in a millisecond, I was back on that gurney. But this time, there was a lot of action happening in that room. And I'd been moved to a different room. I got an upgrade for my room. But yeah, they had um, IVs going. I had an oxygen mask on. Uh, My friend who had been in the room with me, he told me, oh, that's pretty interesting. He said, "When, when they came in to resuscitate you, you know, try to get you going again, he said, you've heard the expression, white as a sheet. He said, I've seen, he had been a Vietnam era medic. And he said, I have seen corpses that looked better than you. He said, you were white as a sheet and you had blue under your eyes and your lips had turned blue. 
so I was, I mean, I was obviously dead. Mm -hmm. And then I was hospitalized for several days. And, yeah. and there's a lot of elements to the story. After I came back, I sold everything I owned, like my car, <laughs> all my possessions, my furniture, sold my house, and I moved a thousand miles uh, due west. I live in the Midwest now, and I just wanted to be around beauty. I love watching plants grow. I mean, I love watching yeah. plants grow. You, you were just different. Everything was different when, when you everything. Do you feel like well, you yeah? The PS was I was healed of cancer. I guess that's part of the story. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> amazing. That's that's beyond amazing. It took another like biopsy. I had to have another surgical biopsy and you know, everyone was surprised. But yeah, actually what the doctor, uh, what the doctor said, because they had to wait a few weeks to do the second surgical biopsy. And I had to find another doctor. The first doctor was like, they actually put in my medical chart that I had mental illness. So I had to go find another doctor in another part of the state. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but she yeah. was very kind and good. And she said, um, yeah, there's not one cell left. And in fact, the quote she gave my friend uh, your flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect. I wouldn't believe you ever had cancer were it not for all the tests. What, what, what was your question? Um, you moved far away. You sold all your possessions. How did you start your life over? Uh, I don't know. I just knew I needed to get rid of everything. I had written nine books. My books are on history. Uh, historical architecture, actually. So I had a lot of stuff, you know, uh, catalogs and ephemera and all kinds of cool stuff. I donated that to a college library, and then I just started selling off my couch, my chairs, my my patio furniture. I mean, I would stand over each item. Like I sold my mom's couch. I had held my mom had been dead for twenty plus years, and I had kept her couch because you know what do you do with a couch where you and your mama sat and had long conversations? But I realized I could keep the memories and let go of the physical thing. And I stood over each item or stood near it, and I said, I said a little prayer. I said, God, this. This item, this couch, this chair has been such a rich blessing in my life. Please bring me the person that needs it. Please send them here. Wow. And, and may it be a rich blessing for them. And you know, I put it on a social media marketplace. And man, that stuh went like hotcakes. Uh, I moved uh, a thousand miles due west and moved in. I find that amazing. Oh, you know what? I realized I realized A, my life had been hard. Uh, and the happiest I had ever been, the happiest I had ever been was floating away from my body. And I literally, you know, like the John Lennon song, I had no possessions. And that was the happiest I'd ever been in my whole experience. And so I thought, you know what? That was pure joy. So I don't need this stuff anymore. And it was really liberating. I know us baby boomers have trouble letting go of our stuff. Yeah. Man, I got to tell you, it felt good. Mm -hmm. um, were you, now, were you surprised and shocked at that? you suddenly were well and cancer-free. The biggest change when I came back, because I was in a hospital bed, I was on total bed rest for uh, four days. So you have a lot of time to think when you're lying in a hospital bed staring at the ceiling, because they, they were very concerned about me bleeding to death again. Uh, the angels were very clear that I had been healed in heaven. And the other thing was my mental state had changed. Not... I don't think not an hour of my life had gone by in the previous 29 months that I didn't ask myself, why did he do this? I thought he loved me. How could he do this? And when I came back from this, I realized those were the wrong questions. One of the things I felt very guilty about is he had been an agnostic, and I felt it had been my duty to teach him about God and Jesus and help him see that the Bible is a real thing. And, and when you feel that you have failed God, there is nowhere to turn for solace. There is no hope. 
And that's what I felt. And one of the things the angels said was, one, you are a sheep, not a shepherd. That was not your job. And secondly, that we are to work out our own salvation. His salvation was not my problem. That my, my job was to be a shining light, to be an example of light and love and peace. And I, and I had done that. And that I had fulfilled my duty. And that gave me so much peace. I felt so shackled by guilt. I can't begin to describe the amount of guilt I felt over his suicide. He had called me before he did this, and there was an ugly argument that he started, and then he hung up, and then he did this. Yeah. And the guilt is unbelievable. And that guilt just went away. And, and it, you know, the doctor who did the second biopsy, she was such a good soul. She was pretty nervous about this whole thing because there were a lot of tests that showed, you know, I had this thing. She was as happy as I was that, uh, as she put it, not one cell left. And she took a lot of flesh from a lot of places. So, yes, it was it was good. But I wasn't um, I, I was pretty sure it was gone because I just felt so different. I feel like I'd been set free. I felt like somebody had come and opened the jail cell and said, why are you in here? Come out. Look at the sky. Look at the grass. It was unbelievable how my mental state changed in the blink of an eye. That's uh, that's incredible. I know Bill, you have a question. Yeah, what's your thoughts on, you know, you went through this experience. Do you believe that we are reincarnated? I get asked that a lot. I don't believe in reincarnation. I believe in eternal life. You know, Carl Sagan said there are billions of galaxies. I can't believe we keep coming back to this dirt ball. <laughs> you know, I mean, give me a break. I know we go on. Where do we go? And, you know, the really cool thing, I mean, I, I overthink everything. But the really cool thing is when I died, when I left that body, it was simpler than going from the living room to the kitchen. It was instantaneous. Mm. It was just like going from here to there. It was so fast. And, you know, a P.S. to this, I, I was told that if I agreed to come back, I'd be whole. At every point in turn, there was an expectation. I mean, 50, I guess I was 59 at that point. 59-year-old woman bleeds to death. Her heart stops and she dies. There's an expectation of a lot of damage in a lot of places. Uh, I was told that my heart muscle had suffered damage, which is because of the elevated enzymes in my blood. And they did a heart test. And I said, oh, I'm fine. The angel said I'd be fine. I'm fine. Well, the doctor, you know, the next morning would come in and say, you're a very lucky woman. Your heart is perfectly healthy. So there was there was a lot of that going on, that there was an expectation of clots too. Uh, apparently when you bleed out, um, things tend to get sticky. <laughs> yeah. And there was none of that. I came back actually in better shape than when I left. <laughs> That's amazing. That, you know, and, and, and you're here to talk about it. To tell your story. And then you tell your story, you have books out, and you're teaching and helping other people along the way, which is great. You said that you had more energy or you had more life when you died. Can you explain that? I had been, you know what a rheostat is? It's like what you have on your, your dining room light that you can dim the light or turn it way up. It's like I had been living my life on the lowest setting. And now it was turned up super bright. One of the things that happened to me after I came back, 
I was in that hospital bed. And again, my faithful friends were staying with me. You know, when you're in a kind of semi-conscious state, it's good to have friends around, make sure they don't come to take you away for a kidney transplant, you know? And so I had my friends with me. Well, every now and then they'd have to step out to go get a burger or something. And when they left, the angels came in and they didn't come in. They just appeared at the side of my bed, my hospital bed. And they surrounded the bed, the sides and the foot. And they sang me the most beautiful songs. And the songs were so beautiful. And I told the angels, I'm really good at houses. I'm not, you know, that's my specialty, architectural history. I said, I'm not so good at remembering melody and lyrics. I'm, I'm not going to be able to remember this. And they said, very precisely, they said, this is not for you to remember. This is for your healing and your peace and your joy. And this is a thank you for agreeing to come back. We know how hard that is. And so they were, uh, that's something I'll remember in eternity. Mm -hmm. Wow. Incredible story, experience. Thank you so much, I mean, for sharing that with us. And like you said, you've been on TV, you have books out. And where can people find you and all that good stuff as we're wrapping up the show? My website is temporarydeath.com because I do not like to call this a near-death experience. Near-death is when... Maybe you're in an aircraft and things start to go wrong <laughs> and then they go right. But yes, I, my website is temporarydeath.com and my book is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. Okay. Amazing story. Amazing, Amazing I mean, experience. I've just had goosebumps the whole time. And to the time. listener out there, it shows you um, and many of these near-death experiences, including my own, which I'm not going to get into, there is another side. Um and it's the stories and the experiences of people that go through this to shed light when they come back towards others. And some of us, like myself, act like a torch to those that only see darkness. And when mm -hmm. you talked about turning up that dim light, that vibrational energy, which was on a low frequency and then it gets higher, I can definitely relate to that and use that faith, wisdom, and love and trust and push it forward. Thank you so much for coming on Horsefly Chronicles Radio. You've been Thank an incredible you, uh, guest, an incredible story, and Beautiful we wish story. you well. And Julie, wrap it up. Thank you. Okay, well, special thank you to Carnation for fully sponsoring the show from day one. We love them. And please join us next Monday night on the United Public Radio Network on 105.3 FM in New Orleans. And stay tuned for Trishmo with the missing piece. Everybody thank have you, a Rosemary. safe, great night. Thank you very much, and thank we'll you. catch you next week. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you.